Now, the other piece to this too, and it's a piece that we haven't focused on as much, is that having an efficient and effective stunning system in place probably has a positive effect for the mental well-being of the people that are doing the job too. At the end of the day, you got to remember that the slaughter process involves ending a life. And so uh, most people have enough empathy that it will get to them if that process is messed up. Welcome to Meats Pad, a platform to share breakthrough knowledge that is accessible to the entire meat industry. Be ready to hear from meat specialists who will talk about numerous topics in meat science, including animal welfare, meat production, meat quality, and so much more. This podcast is brought to you by the U.S. Meat Export Federation, the National Provisioner, Ultrasource, the new standard for innovation, Whirlpack, designed with intention for results that you can trust, and Dry Age Pro, makes dry aging in-house, flexible, safe, and affordable. Hello, meat folks. Welcome to the Meat Spot Podcast. My name is Francisco Nohari, your host today. I'm very excited because... We have a very good friend on this episode today. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Kurt Vogel from the University of Wisconsin, River Falls. He does a lot of work on animal welfare, animal processing, and he's just a good resource for this topic. We'll be talking about animal welfare, stunning methods, and much more today. But before we continue this conversation, Welcome, Dr. Vogel, and it's a pleasure to have you, and, and uh, welcome to, to the Meat Spot Podcast. Thank you very much for letting me join you today, Francisco. We're very happy to have you, Dr. Vogel. This is uh, episode number 21, and I think for our audience, uh, we have a lot of small and mid-sized meat processors, and I think this is a good topic, talking about animal welfare, studying methods, and you're going to provide a, a very good information that I believe and I hope that a lot of our audience will benefit from it. Please, please tell us more about yourself, uh, a little bit about your career, uh, about your background, and, and I think that's going to help us to, to, to get to know you a little bit better. So I started out in dairy, actually. I grew up on a dairy farm in southwest Wisconsin. And I didn't have a lot of deep exposure to the meat industry other than visiting the local uh, processing and butcher shop where we would take cattle uh, to be processed every year or so for use at home. I did my undergrad at UW-Madison at the University of Wisconsin-Madison, and I started working in their meat processing facility and their meat lab. And at there around the similar time, I also uh, got a job with Cargill Regional Beef when they had a slaughter facility that was open in Milwaukee, Wisconsin. So those were really my first two major exposures to meat processing and slaughter in particular. Uh, I've always had a really strong interest in the quality of cull cows and in animal welfare and humane slaughter. And so those things all fit together at that Cargill facility and that's where I really cut my teeth and learned a lot about industry. And then from there, I was fortunate to meet Dr. Temple Grandin. As a matter of fact, I was working in that Cargill plant and was introduced to Dr. Grandin by their general manager, Jerry Karshevsky. And so that's how I found my way more into graduate school. Uh, Dr. Grandin invited me to do a PhD with her. 
my wife and I thought this is a once in a lifetime opportunity. So we packed up and we went to Colorado to do the PhD. Um, after I was finished at Colorado State or really close to finishing up at Colorado State, there was a position uh, that opened at the University of Wisconsin River Falls uh, that was focused on animal welfare. So I applied for that position and I was really fortunate to land that. I really wanted that job. And the reason I wanted that one so badly is because it was highly focused on teaching, but they had some really nice facilities to work in too. So it fit, it fit me really well. So I started at UW River Falls in January of 2011 and I've been there since. And so uh, I teach courses that are focused on animal welfare, uh, specifically my area of expertise is farm animal welfare. And then I also jump in and sort of pinch hit in uh, meat and meat products and also in animal physiology as well. Uh, we do a little bit of research too. We have an undergraduate research lab that we call the Animal Welfare Lab at UW River Falls. And we usually have around a dozen undergraduate students that are working on a variety of research projects in that space. So that's a little bit about what we're up to. Good. How was how was experience working under Dr. Temple Grinding? I know she's amazing. We all know who she is. I'm I'm just pretty I'm interested in knowing more about this experience. Oh yeah, that was that was incredible. Um I think if I were going to, if I were going to point to one person that had the biggest impact on my life overall, it would be her. And uh, it was fortunate that uh, she found me working in some old cold cow slaughter facility. You know, it's, 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 yeah. yeah, it's amazing the way life works out. But when I was working with her, um, one thing that I think made it work really well is that we have a similar set of interests in the humane handling and stunning of animals around slaughter. And it's not like that's one of those topics you like go out and uh, use as an icebreaker when you're meeting people for the first time. You know, you're not going to like walk up to them and be like, hey, have you ever seen the Jarvis USSS 21? It's a great stunner. Because most people are going to be like, you are weird. Get away from me. <laughs> right. But in, in Temple's case, it fit really well because we we're both really into that stuff. You know, we, we were passionate about trying to make sure that animals don't suffer in the final moments of their lives. So it fits, you know. So when I was working with her, um, there was one really important thing that I learned. I learned tons of stuff, but one really important piece that I share with my students is this concept that she shared called project loyalty. And she described it like this, that project loyalty is that thing that will get you through um, a really hard time when you have a job that needs to be done. So you're, you know, you're in grad school right now, you'll run into this if you haven't run into it already, where there's some sort of hardship that comes up. There's a piece yeah, of your project that absolutely. doesn't go well, right? Or there's some sort of interpersonal conflict or whatever. And the moral of that, of that concept is that you stay focused on the goal instead of being pulled off in other directions by distractions that come up. Yeah. right? You stay loyal to the project. So uh, that's something that I took from her that I, I try to share with other people because it's it's just, I don't know, it had a big impact on how I try to do things. Great. Now, this is good. You bring up a very good, um, very good points on, on this, uh, on this concept of failure. Sometimes 
and a lot of the time something is going to happen along the way, along research, like any project. So that, I mean, the whole perfection might not exist. And uh, I think when you think about progress, I think that's very important. I mean, trying to, to keep moving, how to make it work with what you have. Um, and I know you've done a lot of research on, on stunning times. But before we go into all that, please tell us more about this question. Why is it important to have an efficient, stunning process in place in our facilities? Yeah, for sure. So I think we can talk a little bit about the Humane Slaughter Act for a moment because that's that's kind of the, it's a central piece in this. So there's like an ethical piece and then there's this obligatory piece where you have to follow the law. And then in addition to that, there are um, other benefits that we find from providing pre-slaughter stunning that affect meat quality. So we have like these three pieces that are lined up. So um, we'll focus on the law first. So the Humane Slaughter Act was uh, passed in 1958. Uh, it was put into effect in 1960. It applied to uh, slaughter establishments that were federally inspected and sold meat to the U.S. government to start off with. And then later on, it was amended in 1978 to include all federally inspected slaughter facilities. So by default, it included state inspected facilities too, um, because they have equal to standards between the two um, inspection systems. So the reason I bring up that, that law is because in that law, they gave the rationale for why that law existed. And it was focused on improving the um, economy of meat processing. So like the efficiency and um, how fast and how smoothly things could run. It also uh, was used to improve product quality, to prevent needless animal suffering and to protect the safety of workers. And so even from the original inception, of that, uh, that law, we've already got the four main pieces laid out there of why pre-slaughter stunning and humane slaughter matters. So that's really the core of it, right? If we have an efficient stunning system in place, then we're going to prevent needless suffering for the animals. The system's gonna run smoother and more predictably. We should have a more consistent product overall. And so our plant should run more efficiently. Now. The other piece to this too, and it's a piece that we haven't focused on as much, is that having an efficient and effective stunning system um, in place probably has a positive effect for the mental well-being of the people that are doing the job too. At the end of the day, you got to remember that the slaughter process involves ending a life. And so uh, most people have enough empathy that it will get to them if that process is messed up. And so that's where it's really important to make sure that this is done right and done consistently. Thank you for sharing that, Dr. Vogel. I think I agree with you 100% on, on, the, on the empathy, on this, this insight that you're bringing today. We try to do our best to properly stun livestock, the animals that they don't suffer. And I think this is a, this is a very good, uh, good topic that here in a minute we'll talk more about that. Uh, we can also briefly talk about the types of stunning. Uh, I know in cattle we use the mechanical stunning, we use captive bolt. I know in pigs we only use electrical stunning or, or chemical stunning when, when we utilize CO2. 
before we go more in depth about your research, please set the stage, the types of stunning, and then we can discuss more about that. Yeah, sure. So there are three primary categories of stunning that we acknowledge. So we have chemical, physical, and electrical. Um, the chemical method, like you mentioned, is typically carbon dioxide gas. And for the most part in red meat species, we see that used on pigs. Um, in poultry, though, we see it used quite a bit for chickens and turkeys. We also will see physical uh, stunning used. And the thing about physical stunning, that's going to include captive bolt or gunshot. We also refer to it as mechanical stunning. So um, that type of stunning method can be applied to any species. Um, that's kind of the nice thing about using that method. It's quick, it's effective. Um, one of the big issues that we run into with it though is that in some species, there's a considerable amount of post-stun involuntary carcass movement that makes it really hard for shackling. Uh, that's one of the main reasons why for a lot of small and very small processors that use captive bolt guns, we'll often try to transition them off of using captive bolt onto using electrical stunning if they have effective restraint available, just because uh, it's so hard to get those pigs shackled. Uh, and there's also a fair amount of petechial hemorrhaging that'll happen as well, um, just from all of the uh, change in blood pressure that happens with the very rapid and massive um, amount of muscle contraction that happens after a captive bolt stun on the pig. Um, and then the third category, is electrical stunning, and that one's pretty straightforward. So in that case, we're gonna apply an electrical current to the body of the animal. It has to um, include the brain in the circuit. So this can either be done with a single step where we're going to pass a current just across the brain. In that case, we're going to usually have a window of about 15 seconds that we have to have the animal hoisted and stuck. Um, so bleeding has to start, or there's a good chance the animal's gonna return to consciousness. Um, we can also include part of the spinal column in that circuit too. And that's what you see in a lot of larger plants that do electrical stunning. So they usually have an electrode that's near the head and another electrode that's located further back on the body. And with that type of stunning system, the thought is that it's going to knock out the brain, but then also depolarize that section of the spine that's included in the circuit. And that also helps then to, um, oh, what's a good way to describe this? to make it so that the heart doesn't function as it normally would. So it goes into this state of fibrillation where it's just beating so erratically and irregularly that you can't pump blood consistently through the body. Um, the other process or the other approach that we can take with electrical stunning is we can do a two-step process. So we can apply electrical current across the head, roll the animal out of a restrainer if we need to, um, or let the animal collapse depending on how we're stunning and then apply a current to the cardiac region. So at the heart, to knock out the heart too. So that gives you a little bit of a description of some of the stunning that we, uh, that we use. Thank you very much for sharing that. And I think I have a lot of folks um, in our audience that, that are very interested in this topic. And especially you talking about that ability to properly restrain the animal. I mean, the, and, and all that, to do our best to, to apply and have the proper application of that. Um, I mean, in the case of pigs, the electrodes, you want to place them correctly. Then the other question is, 
is that kicking, that involuntary movement that, that we observe in, in livestock and spe specifically in cattle, and when they're, even though they're properly stunned, we might see that involuntary movement, that kicking. Is there any recommendation for, for our audience in case they want to minimize that kicking, if they're struggling when it comes to shackling the legs to, to do the exsanguination step, is there any recommendation that you can provide? Mm -hmm. Yeah, that one's really tough. So if um, in the case of cattle, um, we can usually manage it pretty well because you have kind of a window where there's not a lot of movement after the stun. And as long as you're working within that period of time, you can get a shackle on and you can get hoisting pretty quickly. Um, but in the case of pigs, it's usually best to try to use some other type of stunning method if you can, um, or um, you might have to um, either table stick, which is not necessarily the, the best route to take because it, um, it really takes relearning the motion of um, exsanguination um, because it's different if the animal's lying on its side versus hanging upside down, um, but it's something that can be learned. So that's an option. Um, another choice is to try to knock out the heart and then you've got um, hopefully enough depolarization of the spine that goes along with that stun that you'll have a little longer time to get that shackle on before the animal starts to kick. In general though, we wanna try to avoid using a captive bolt or a gunshot on pigs just because of all that involuntary kicking and the carcass damage that comes along with it. With that said, you have carcass damage with electrical stunning on pigs too, because that's where you're usually going to see um, breakage of bones yeah, and also, yeah, blood splash there as well. So, you know, there's no real silver bullet there. Um, another thing we, we've got to kind of think about here in the future is how the pigs experience carbon dioxide stunning too. Um, so it seems that there is a portion of the population of pigs that respond adversely to exposure to carbon dioxide. And so that's one of those challenges we've got to get our heads wrapped around, I think, pretty soon um, and try to fix the issue. It seems like that's an issue that might be able to be fixed through genetic selection of pigs that just aren't, or aren't, um, oh, they don't respond adversely to carbon dioxide, but uh, it's going to take some work to figure it out. And very quick, Dr. Vogel, when you say that the pigs are being affected by the CO2 gas, what do you mean by this? So, yeah, what I mean is that they'll, they'll respond adversely, meaning that they'll become agitated okay. or excited and may display behaviors that um, look like escape behaviors okay. inside the gondola when they're going into the CO2 yep. system. Mm-hmm. Okay. Great. And the reason I ask you this is because overall we know that using CO2 improves the overall quality of meat, but I think it's a good uh, follow-up. In terms of quality, what is the main difference between CO2 and electrical stunning? Oh, yeah. Yeah. The, the color is better in CO2 stun pigs, and um, you'll see far less blood splash. Blood splash is very uncommon in CO2 systems and also bone breaks. So you don't see as much of that either. So um, the movement to CO2 uh, has done a lot for improving meat quality. And the next challenge we have to focus on is making sure that 
uh, the pigs that we're putting into those systems uh, don't don't experience discomfort within those systems. We'll be right back. The Niche Meat Processor Assistance Network, or NPAN, is a proud sponsor of the Meatspad podcast. We're almost to the end of this episode, and I think we we like to ask one simple question to our guests, and it's a simple one, but I, I like to I like to ask about one experience that you have gone through um, that that made you a better professor. Uh, to understand more about, um, I don't know, example, industry issues, um, how to improve some of, in, terms of, in terms of education, any, something that really had an impact on you and you, you can possibly share that with us so, so we can know more about who Dr. Vogel is. Good question, Francisco. Um, yeah, the one I've got to share. So, uh, one thing I've, I've kind of come to learn is that the lessons that uh, that we learn that stick with us the longest typically are rooted in failure. And so in my case, I think the experience that really changed the way that I approach how I live and what I prioritize had to do with a one job in particular that I really wanted, applied for, interviewed for, and just failed to secure. And I think that that really had an impact on how I approached how I do things. Because there's nothing more humbling than coming up short on something you really, really want. And at that point, it forces you to reassess what matters to you. And so at that point, once I could move past the original kind of the sting of missing that opportunity, then the next thing I had to do was take a look at what I had left and reassess what success meant for me. And so at that point, I realized that I was pretty successful already with what I had. I'm fortunate. I've got, um, I'm in a position where I get to mentor people for a living. I identify as a teacher first. And so I'm really happy with the role that I'm in, you know, because all I get to do is I get to teach and help people succeed. It's cool. And then in addition to that, I'm fortunate that I'm in a role right now where um, I get to spend time with my family. And what's really interesting about all this, at least for me, is that this whole experience with COVID um, and working from home has granted me more time to spend with my family. Now, with that said, it's not all just hanging out, right? And lounging around all the time because we also chose to homeschool our two boys. And so what I'm doing right now is I'm teaching during the day, my kids, and then I'm teaching my students during the night. So that's when I'm building lecture content, posting stuff, right? And so you're burning the candle at both ends. It's not sustainable. But I think that um, I'll be able to look back on this and feel pretty good about what was accomplished. You know, that's, that's the wild thing about it all is you, um, when you're in the thick of it all, um, you don't have those good feelings of nostalgia and getting the job done yet. But when you, one thing to keep in mind is that when things are really tough and it feels like it's really hard, it's going to feel really good to turn around and take a look once you're through it. 
Well, thank you for sharing that. And I think um, I 100% agree with you and all that you're saying. I mean, failure is, is always going to be there. I mean, meaning if, if you don't get that job and you fail one exam, you got you got to be. It's not the end of the world. You got to keep moving forward. And I guess for those folks that are listening, it's sometimes hard, but we have to continue. And I think in my my in my mind, I value a lot of perseverance and and persistence. Uh, yeah, I I think that's I think you're right on. It's it's actually. It, I'm glad that this is a point that your listeners are going to get to hear, especially for those folks that are really getting started. Um, that it's not all about the number of papers you publish, although that's how that's a metric that we use quite a bit in academia, right? For yeah. like a measure of success. Yeah. Um, so we've got to make sure that we're at least clearing that hurdle if we want to pursue a career in academia. But the other piece to it too is we've got to make sure that we find these oh these ways that we can we can find intrinsic value in ourselves right like what what's the value that we bring to the world there's this saying that i always keep in the back of my mind because it's not like it was just that one experience that i shared with you that's been a challenge right so i was talking with a good mentor of mine just a while back and uh you know, he said, man, if I paid attention to all the failures that I had, um, I wouldn't see all the, all the success I had. And I, I think that's, that's important to keep in mind, you know, for all those successes, there are plenty of failures, plenty of times you come up short. And one thing I always tell myself when I'm uh, coming up short with something is that uh, this is just a cloud and the sun's going to shine once that cloud passes. And sure enough, it does. And I have one more question for you. This is more related to, to your research. Please tell us more about your work on, on the head, heart, stunning. And tell us more about the results of this research, about the implications of the data. And I think, uh, I think this is a good topic as well. Yeah, this is, this is an older study that we did. So back in, um, I think we published this one in like 2010 or 2012 or so. But... Um, anyway, the project has probably been the most impactful work I've been a part of. So what, what really spurred us on here, got us started, was that we were hearing um, reports from small and very small slaughter establishments of pigs that were returning to consciousness uh, during the bleed-out period. So they'd be stunned, and they'd be hoisted, and they're bleeding, and they're clearly returning to consciousness. They're showing writing reflexes and vocalizing and looking around, and it was not good. And so we thought, let's see if we can figure out a way to fix this before it becomes a, you know, a really big visual issue, right? And at that same time, um, I ran across a good friend named Erica Vogue. And Erica is um, somebody that does a lot of animal welfare related work. She's a consultant. And uh, she's spent a lot of her career working with Temple. So they have a very similar view on things in general. And um, Erica had been telling a lot of her consulting clients for quite some time that after they had only stun, they should apply another stun to the heart area of the pig and that that should knock out the heart and give them more time um, to hoist and to bleed. So there wasn't any validation work on that yet. So we designed a validation study and tested it out. 
what we found was that it worked in over 80% of the pigs that we applied the second head or excuse me, the second heart stun to, um, we were able to knock out the heart. We couldn't find a, a detectable heartbeat. So we figured that that was a successful thing. Um, we also found that the effects on meat quality were fairly minimal. Um, and I think part of that was because the effects on meat quality were masked by the fact that it was a small plant that couldn't get the pigs to the cooler that fast anyway. So, you know, if I were gonna tell you that it had no effect at all on quality, I think I'd be lying because there'd have to be an effect. You're applying a, a high amount of electrical energy to the carcass, you know, it's gonna cause some damage to the carcass. So uh, we published that work. And after we published that work, we learned that there were a lot of plants, small and very small plants, originally in the upper Great Lakes region, but it sort of branched out more from there that were picking up this method of electrical stunning for their pigs. I think it's pretty common now. Um, and it's affected a lot of pigs and a lot of people. So that's one project in particular that um, was pretty cool to be a part of. Could you tell us more about this second stunning that you just mentioned? Yeah, sure. So what we did is we had, we had two treatments in that study. One treatment was a head-only stun that was applied for three seconds. And we were using a, uh, the, the typical red box Best and Donovan Model ES stunner that a lot of people have with the fork type stunning wand. So we didn't have tongs, although usually I recommend that people use tongs now because they hold onto the pig's head better. So we, that's a voltage regulated stunner. So we had it set for an output that would give us somewhere around two amps of current when we uh, took the resistance of the pig into consideration. And so this was usually somewhere around like 290 volts is about where we were. Um, so that was our, you could almost call it our control because it was what the industry was using at that time. Just the head. Yeah, just head only. Then for our head heart treatment, we applied the same head only stun for three seconds. We followed that immediately with the application of the stunning wand to the area right behind the sort of the armpit of the pig, if pigs had armpits. Um, so right over the heart uh, for another three seconds. And then after that, you go right into shackling and hoisting and everything else. Um, so it was just that little secondary step. Okay. So, yep, that was our, that was our uh, head heart treatment. Great, great. Awesome. Thank you for, uh, for having the time to be here today with us. I really hope that meat processors have a better understanding and, and all the information that you provided today is useful for, for, for a lot of folks out there. So we get to understand more about the importance of stunning and how to properly stun animals. And I really hope to, to, get, to, to get to see you sometime soon. Uh, possibly in uh, in RMC in Reno this year, and and uh, thank you thank you a lot for your time, and and we'll we'll hope to see you soon. Well, thank you, Francisco. It's been a real pleasure. I really enjoyed our conversation today. Thank you. That we end this episode. Thank you a lot for listening. If you'd like to receive notifications on the new releases and the new episodes please subscribe at www.meetspad.com 
if you're a small and mid-sized meat processor and you have concerns or questions about a certain topic related to, to meat science and meat processing, please email us at info at meatspot.com. Thank you and I'll see you the next time.